Welcome to the study of God's Word recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. Amen. All right. So, as you're in Luke chapter 22, if you have a Bible from the back, it's going to be on page 728. And where we find ourselves is in the middle of the Last Supper. So if you're familiar with uh, the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples before he went to the cross, this chapter covers much of that. And so starting at the beginning of the chapter, uh, it talks about that the Passover is near, which is a religious feast that the Jews kept, Jesus kept, and he celebrated uh, the deliverance of God coming for his people, that God didn't forget his people in times of trouble and extreme testing and stress. And so as he prepared to celebrate Passover, the religious leaders observed that Jesus' influence and his sway was growing. The culture was in love with this guy, and they had to take him out. But they had a problem. If they take him out while he's popular, and they allow their fear to their fear of the people to, to drive things, then they have to do it quietly. And sometimes fear drives us to some of the worst things that we can do. Some of the poorest decisions of our life are born out of fear. So in verse 3, Jesus takes the first communion. Satan comes, he possesses Judas himself. Judas is possessed. He runs out, leaves the room, and what's going on? And he goes to the religious leaders and says, look, I have a plan. I'll betray Jesus. I will give you over to him. You have to think about this because Jesus is Judas' personal pastor. Jesus has pastored Judas for the last few years, and he's going to sell Jesus to the authorities for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave is what he'll hand him over for. And so it moves down and talks about Jesus um, sharing the last dinner with his disciples. And then in verse 23, it picks up. Actually, let's jump up. I'm sorry. Let's jump up in verse 20. And it says, likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the son of man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man to whom he is betrayed. Then they begin to question among themselves which of them it was who would do such a thing. So what's happening here is Jesus tells them, look, I'm, I'm about to be betrayed uh, these guys have been following Jesus with the expectation that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus will help them stage a revolt. Perhaps they had in their mind, like the Maccabean revolt two centuries before, that they would rise up, they would throw off their Roman oppressors, and they would have freedom. Jesus is sharing with them, look, I'm about to uh, be betrayed. It's not going to play out the way that you think. But caught up in the middle of this war, this battle in the unseen, are his disciples, his followers. And what's unfolding is a battle for their soul, their heart, their mind, 
but also the future of the church. If Satan can kill the church in this room in its infancy, it's done. He can snuff it out. And so the disciples are following Jesus. They don't fully understand what it's going to take for them to be committed to him. And as they step out and they begin to join him and they begin to get a clearer version of what's going on, what they're going to have to battle in their faith life is whether things are going to play out in line with their expectations. Are things going to play out like Jesus' vision for them is or what their version of it is going to be? You see, Judas uh, sat at the table with everybody else for years. He fit in. He knew how to talk. He knew what to say. He was around the ministry that was happening. From all outside appearances, uh, he was an upstanding guy. And that may fit some people listening today or who are in the room. And behavior modification, uh, changing someone's behavior or how Judas was behaving is not the highest goal in life. The transformation of the Spirit of God needs to be our, our highest goal. We can look the part, but if we're not transformed, nothing practical takes place. The pastor Charles Stanley wrote, God is looking for imperfect men and women who have learned to walk in moment-by-moment dependence on the Holy Spirit. Christians who have come to terms with their inadequacies, fears, and failures. Believers who have become discontent with surviving and have taken the time to investigate everything God has to offer in this life. You see, of all the disciples sitting at the table, each one of them had to make a decision on what to do with the information that they were about to get that was coming. They could decide uh, a variety of paths. They could walk with Jesus. They could be obedient and see where the adventure took them. Uh, They could become spiritual doomsday preppers where they just decide, no, not me. No battle for me. I'm going to take my talent. I'm going to bury it. I'm going to wait for the storm to pass, and I'm going to be done. And a lot of people fit that description or identify as followers of Jesus. Then there's another segment of the church who flirts with indulging a kind of spiritual Stockholm syndrome in which they're tempted to fall in love with the world that wants to capture them. And so in the middle of this battle, there's testing. You will not escape testing in your life. If you think that you signed up to follow Jesus and there will be no backlash for joining up against the kingdom of darkness, you're wrong. But if you think that Jesus is a king without power and he doesn't know how to lead an army, you're also wrong. So I want you to write down a question if you're taking notes this morning. Think of a time in your life, and it may be this morning, it may be right now, that you were deeply tested. I have a few moments like that where I felt like the Lord was allowing me to be pushed uh, to the verge of uh, not being able to bear the kind of weight that it felt like was coming down on my faith. And when you have that moment, or you at least have it in your mind, I want you to ask yourself, did you see it coming before it happened? Did you know that that time of testing was coming your way? And then I want you to think through what was your response and why did you respond that way? And the reason why we're doing this is because it can be helpful to have a very personal exercise to go through as we move through this. 
So let me define sifting for us this morning. Sifting was when sheaves of wheat were taken and they were shaken and they were tossed. And the point was to separate out the grain uh, from the chaff, from what was valuable to what just was around the value, but actually had no substance at all. It wasn't good for anything. So sift, the definition, is to examine something thoroughly as to isolate that which is most important or useful. And a spiritual description of that would maybe be an inward agitation to try one's faith to the verge of overthrow. You see, the enemy is trying to exact a price from you for following Jesus. And his hope is that he will strip you of your worth and your value. He will convince you not to walk in the authority of the Spirit of God. And then he can do whatever he wants. But in the time of testing, something is also happening. The Lord has given permission for the enemy to test us in order to bring about the things that we need to increase our value, to mature our faith, to clarify it, in order to allow us to be stable. And so I want you to understand something as you're taking notes that God allows us to be sifted. There are streams of Christianity that believe that you should no longer struggle, uh, that you should just speak positively about everything, that if you pretend like nothing's happening, nothing will happen. I remember asking my pastor growing up, uh, why don't we ever talk about spiritual warfare? And he goes, shh. He goes, if we don't talk about it, it won't do anything with us. And I was like, wow. As a kid, I remember thinking, that's really superstitious. Like, that's really bizarre that that's the point. But not only is sifting going to happen to you and to me at God's watch, but it's also happening by his permission because it's growing us. And so we have to have the humility to understand that we need to be dependent on the Father. We need to allow him to have his way, even if it's uncomfortable and puts pressure on us because something powerful is taking place in your spiritual walk. The pastor F.B. Meyer wrote this. He goes, you know, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves, uh, one above the other, and that the taller we grew in Christian character, the more easily we should reach them. I find now that God's gifts are actually on shelves, one beneath the other. And it's not a question of growing taller, but of stooping lower. That we have to go down, always down to get the best gifts. Because that's how God teaches us. God was going to give his disciples a church. He was going to give them a spiritual kingdom. But if you give somebody a church or a kingdom or some level of responsibility and you don't prepare them for it, that's just dangerous. It's reckless. So God allows us to be tried in order to prepare us for the kingdom that he has. So we'll pick up here in verse 24 with an exchange that's happening. And this is, um, this is primarily at this point between the disciples. And Jesus chimes in and he says, Now there is also a dispute among them as to which one of them should be considered the greatest. So you have to remember their context here. They think they're stepping into a government. They're talking about cabinet positions. They're thinking as they're getting ready, moving over to the couch, that somebody is going to betray Jesus. 
they're wondering who it is. Is it this person? Is it that person? I don't know. It inevitably leads to a discussion on, well, it definitely wouldn't be me because I'm awesome. And Jesus is lucky to have me as a disciple. It's like, well, hold on now. I'm a great disciple. I'm actually a better disciple. And so then they get into this argument back and forth over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And the word that it uses here um, in verse 24 for dispute, um, in the Greek, it says it was a heated disagreement. It was not good-natured jabbing. And so most likely, because Jesus is going to address Peter here, and there's been an ongoing source spot around this subject at least four times in the Gospels, it was probably between Peter and James and John. These are the three that make up the inner circle of what Jesus is doing with his disciples. And so they're having this heated disagreement. Jesus could have settled it by just saying, you know what? I'm the greatest. Stop it. Knock it off. But instead, we see in John that Jesus gets out a bowl of water, he gets a towel, and he starts to wash their feet. And as he does that in the the parallel stories from the other Gospels, it's super interesting that Jesus doesn't, doesn't um, berate them. He's very tender. But he says in verse 25, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, or he, sorry, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel." See, this had been an ongoing disagreement because uh, at least one time prior, as they were making their way to Jerusalem, James and John's mom approached Jesus and said, hey, my kids are really um, exceptional. They're really special. Would you give them the highest position in your kingdom? And Jesus is like, okay. You know, like a proud mom, you know. And so it doesn't, he doesn't uh, indulge that. But then there's another time that's recorded where mom's not there, but James and John come to Jesus and say, hey, uh, Jesus, could you do us a favor and make us great in your kingdom? And Jesus said, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't know what you're talking about. But whatever was going on, these guys were very real people who had very real dreams for their life. They harbored very real um, visions and hopes that uh, they were seeing things moving in a direction towards. And so they were not that different than you or me. But we have to understand that God is not moved by your dream. He's not moved by my dream. God created you because he dreamed you up. And he has a purpose for you that he gave before the foundations of the world were laid. And so God's not moved by stuff. He's not moved by ideas of grandeur. God's moved by faith. We gather here, God responds to faith. He responds to his church. God's not responding to the carpet. He's not responding to the lights, to the building, to the corner that this building was built on. 
but he responds to the people and he responds to us by coming and helping us and serving us. In verse 25, Jesus says, look, the world, uh, they, they exercise lordship, but it's self-exalting. They want to be on top. They want to domineer. And he uses the word benefactor, which to these guys culturally was very important because it was a word that was inscribed on their coins, on their currency. And it would have the word benefactor on it. And then it would have one of the rulers over them who is in league with the Roman Empire who was oppressing them, their picture would be on it. It would say benefactor. And so in the Roman Empire would take over a new territory and the frontiers of the empire, which was kind of where this territory was, they would give it to soldiers who were exceptional and then they could be, uh, have some freedom to be a benefactor. And a lot of times they were merciless in how they handled their people. So Jesus is saying, rather let you become Like in reality, become a servant. Don't rule in the sense of seeking authority, seeking ambition, being the most important. And so we need to understand that God's power doesn't come among us because we have a title. God's power doesn't come among us because of who we know. God's power doesn't come among us because of what we think of ourselves. God's power is a byproduct of his presence being among us and with us. And so in verse 27, Jesus goes on and he says, for who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. David Guzik writes in his commentary that in ancient China, Uh, Wealthy people, uh, it was customary for them to grow out their fingernails to the point of not being able to really do anything for themselves. And it was a sign to the culture that they were important, that they didn't have to work, and that others should serve them. Whatever our culture or this culture's idea of status was, that's what they were after. That's what they were into. That's what mattered to them. And so it's not reverse psychology or a life hack. Oh, if I really want to get on top spiritually, uh, I'll clean a few toilets and Jesus will thank me for it. And then I'll be noticed. Jesus is not about us being noticed. Jesus is about things of substance being done. And these guys, it's kind of funny because Jesus was among them for the last several years. He never sought his own gain at their expense. Jesus wasn't domineering. He wasn't harsh. He didn't put them down or berate them in order to get something from them. The way that Jesus came to live among humanity as a servant was powerful, leaving the throne room of heaven to come live among people. But you consider the region he was in where most of these guys were from was Galilee. Galilee's blue collar. Galilee is not very educated, simultaneously not very religious. Don't have a high value for it. These are people who are working to survive. It's pretty rural. They have country accents. You picture Jesus talking with a country accent, and you would be right. That's the culture that he was raised in. His disciples had country accents. These were guys who were fishermen. They were just regular Joes, normal guys who came. And Jesus is probably just, it's a ridiculous conversation because they're talking about how impressed everybody should be by them and how important they are. 
And Jesus is trying to get them to understand, no, you need to be compelled by love. Because when love is the driver, love is happiest when it is serving the object of its affection. And so if love can't do that, love is in pain. See, there's not a lot of competition for the worst jobs out there. There's not a lot of competition for difficult postures of grace, for serving other people. You don't often see a line of people willing to serve sick kids that are vomiting or people willing to clean toilets or people willing to do other difficult jobs because there aren't a lot of applicants. But that's the upside down nature of the kingdom is not drawing people to us, but us being drawn to others because they're the affection of God's love. And so the world likes to chew people up and spit them out, but God heals people. He binds people up and he sends them out. And so Jesus, no matter how misguided these guys are in verse 28, he commends them for their loyalty because they've, they've continued on. They've remained through some of the early stages of his ministry where they've been sleeping out in the country. They've been sleeping in random couches in different houses, but the Lord was leading them. Now he tells them, I'm going to bestow a kingdom on you. Now the kingdom, followers of Jesus at this time, were probably no more than a few hundred people. But now, 2,000 years later, it can only be guesstimated in the billions of people that have come. The church around the world is booming. This morning as we speak, we prayed for the persecuted church, the church in Iran. And the last 10 years has added a million followers of Jesus Christ. The Chinese church is booming. Churches that are being sifted, churches that are enduring hardship and oppression, these guys are pretty healthy. These guys understand the stakes. They're not under any kind of illusion of comfort. And so Jesus is trying to prep these guys because when he goes to the cross, they're about to be marked people and they're going to be hunted. And a sifting is going to happen because a persecution will come upon them. These guys think they're so ready for great things. Now, sometimes we look at that and we judge them. What we should be doing is examining our own heart and where we're at, because we're not so different. We have to be careful of not rushing ahead of what God has for us. Even when we're sent by him, you cannot let passion and intensity hijack or rob you of stability and longevity and serving the Lord. These guys kind of heard Jesus. It went in one ear and out the other, but they weren't listening to Jesus. A lot of times what happens is these guys, when they run into some failure, the temptation will be to get insecure and to sit down and stay where they're at in their failure. And I want to encourage you that I've had failures. I know you've had failures, but you can't live there. You cannot allow difficult and hard seasons in your life to create in you a victim mentality where you sit down and you give up. That is not God's heart for you. You may feel inadequate to the task that God is calling you to, but you need to know that he's going in front of you and he's willing to anoint you and cover you with the Holy Spirit. So the second thought as we jump into the next set of verses is that Jesus prays for us during the sifting. Jesus prays for us. And verse 31, it picks up and it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you 
that he may sift you as wheat. You talk about a moment that makes your blood run cold, that sends a chill down your spine. Jesus is telling him that Satan himself, the personal demonic being, is after him and called him by name. We see this in the book of Job. We see that there was another instance where Satan wanted to go after Job. And so Jesus tells him this as a warning. But then he goes on in verse 32 and he says, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. You see, Jesus doesn't waste his breath. When Jesus is our advocate, he's our intercessor, he's praying for us, we can be assured that anywhere we are going has not uh, taken us down the path that Jesus has not already been down. He has not already covered for us. And so he's doing a work, whatever is going on in Peter's heart, however inadequate he may end up feeling. But you need to understand that when you follow Jesus and you step into a battle, and you step into a season where the enemy targets you and he's going to shake you and he's going to seek to remove anything of value to leave you as nothing, to fully crush you, that the Lord will sustain you. His grace is sufficient for us. There's a price to be paid for the kingdom that they're inheriting, for the call of following Jesus. And so not only is there a price, but there's preparation to be made. And when you go through times of hardship and sifting, it changes you in a way that only God can use. Charles Spurgeon wrote, anytime you see a revival of religion, you also see a revival of opposition. So we know that Peter is about to go through this time and he's going to deny it up and down. He's going to say, no, Lord, I'm not going to do that. And Jesus says, look, before the rooster crows today, so it's after midnight when they're talking, so probably in the next five hours, In the next five hours, Peter, you're going to deny me so fast, it'll make your head spin. Peter's like, no, that's not me. You don't understand. And Peter's sincere. He's not lying. He's brave. He's being courageous. But Peter doesn't understand the stakes because he hasn't been that way before. But God knows, and God's praying for him. Peter would later write in 1 Peter chapter 4, Verses 12 through 16, and and this is a paraphrase from the message, but it says, friends, when life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. Instead, be glad that you're in the very thick of what Christ experienced. This is a spiritual refining process with glory just around the corner. If you're abused because of Christ, count yourself fortunate. It's the spirit of God and his glory in you that brought you to the notice of others. If they're on you because you broke the law or disturbed the peace, that's a different matter. But if it's because you're a Christian, don't give it a second thought. Be proud of the distinguished status reflected in that name. See, when you're being refined, there's a process here of your value coming to the surface and the Lord buffing out the rough edges in your life, in your spirit. And sometimes that happens, like it says in Hebrews 12, through a lot of shaking. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 3, it speaks of the Lord, and it says, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, 
And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. You see, the verse describes somebody being refined. It describes God as sitting while it's happening. And sometimes we feel that. We feel God is sitting and he's watching. And we start praying prayers like, God, where are you? Why are you letting this happen? I know the enemy has to get permission from you. Why is this happening in me? And as the refiner sits next to what's being refined, the silver, what you need to understand is that he's watching the fire, the furnace, intently. He has to, because he has to be so engaged in the process that there's no other distraction as things are unfolding, because should the process go a moment too long, the silver will cease to be valuable because it will be injured. You see, your trials, my trials, don't come for me at random. They're a part of a carefully crafted process to strengthen and grow me and you in areas where you're lacking. And so according to tradition, when the silversmith is ready to check the silver, he knows that the refining process is done when all the dross is off and he can look into his creation and he can see his own image reflected back. And when he can see his image reflected back at him, he knows that the process is complete and he can take the metal out of the fire so that it's not ruined. Don't let feeling inadequate cause you to resist the call of Christ when he's asking you to go somewhere with him. The disciples had their issues for sure. You have your issues for sure. I have my issues, but it hasn't stopped Jesus from calling me and allowing me to be a part of what he's doing. There's a man in 1521 and 1522 AD. He went by the name uh, Junker Jorg. He worked in a little room. He had a full beard, shaved his head, very little furniture in the room. And what had happened was four years previously, this guy had had a hit put out on his life because what he had done had upset the Holy Roman Emperor and had turned Western civilization upside down. And so in his pursuit of truth and fixing different errors, um, it was clear that he was going to be murdered. People were allowed to murder him if they saw him without retribution. And so this man has been sequestered, and Frederick III, the elector of Saxony, organized a kidnapping of him. It was a fake kidnapping to take him away and hide him in Wartburg Castle in Germany. See, the man's name was Martin Luther, and most people thought that he was dead, but what he was actually doing was copying the New Testament into the common language of the people so that the people would have access to the word of God. And you look at the world and you think, man, why wouldn't you want people to have truth and knowledge and understanding? Like, you should be grateful for that. But that's not how the world approaches Jesus in his ministry. It's antagonistic. And so even though this man was following the call of the Lord, he would not be rewarded in the world system, but he'd be rewarded by the Lord. You see, we don't get to choose our call, but you do get to choose your response and what you're going to do with that.
You see, the other disciples had to be watching Peter, listening to this and thinking a few different things. All right, Peter's twice our age. He's mid-40s. Most of us are early 20s, maybe late teens. Peter's a capable businessman. He's a fisherman. He's in partnership with James and John. So he's not dumb. He knows how to do things. Peter is the boldest by far of all of us, and he's part of the inner circle. And so if Peter is not going to make it, what does that mean for me? And if their eyes were on Peter, the fear could have become intoxicating. It could have gained traction to the point to where it would have demoralized them from even stepping forward into the call that God had given them. But you see, our hope is not in people. Peter may have had a a chill for a moment, and the guys were sitting around daydreaming about their crowns and their thrones and what the Lord was going to do, talking about who was going to be the greatest, and now we're going to rule a kingdom. But Jesus knew what was coming for them. And as they're daydreaming, often as we're daydreaming in our lives, Jesus is focused on the mission that he has for you. And so the kingdom of darkness is being threatened. They'd already had some success in winnowing away Judas. Uh, He attempted Jesus first. Jesus didn't bite. And so now he's coming for Peter. But the you here that Satan has asked to sift you is actually plural. So it's meant for all the disciples in the room, even though he's directly addressing Peter. And he says, look, hard times are coming for you. But Jesus comforts him. The enemy will not be able to crush you because I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. And it doesn't stop with that. He says, I'm praying that your faith would not fail. The point of prayer for Jesus, the line of defense that Jesus draws around his people is the point of faith. Jesus will allow you to be pushed He will allow you to be stretched. He will allow you to endure things that may feel difficult because you're in the middle of growing pains. He's growing you up into him. And failure has a a demoralizing and corrosive effect on the mind and the spirit. And sometimes those failures stick with us as an acute sting for years. We go back and we replay it in our mind like a broken record over and over and over And I've known failure. I'm sure you've known failure. And what's powerful about this is Jesus understands that for all of Peter's talk, and Peter's sincere, Peter hasn't been this way before, and Peter's not going to be able to go to prison with him, and he's not going to be able to die for him if he can't stand up to a servant girl in a courtyard five hours from now. Peter will find himself swearing at her, denying that he was ever any part of what Jesus was doing. But Jesus tells Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail, even though it falters. And then he speaks to Peter with certainty. When you have returned, strengthen your brethren. You see, in the the hardships, the difficulties that we go through, Satan was excited to give Peter a brutal shaking. Jesus was giving Peter a a word of knowledge, a prophetic word here. And we're watching this playing out, but we can be so comforted because we know that whatever is allowed to take place in our life, whatever God chooses for me and for you, it's good and it's right. And so the Lord will take whatever is given 
and he will keep the value and he'll make it fit for the king's granary. He's going to take care of that. And that's comforting as we pass through hard times. David wrote in Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So wait on the Lord and be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Guard your faith. You see, Peter would be uniquely qualified to lead the church after the sifting. Peter would understand the power of God's grace, the reach of God that goes far beyond anything that we would choose to grasp or hold on to ourselves when it comes to relationships. Jesus is sitting here telling Peter, I'm praying for you while he's aware that Peter is getting ready to betray him, but Jesus is pastoring Peter. We don't get to choose what will happen or when we will get tested. For some of us, it was the moment we made a profession of faith. We got off of our knees and the enemy throat punched us and the game was on. That was it. And we've just been in the battle ever since. And we're aware of it. For others, like Peter, you make it a few years in, you start to get falsely confident. This isn't so hard. I don't know what everybody's upset about. I'm like, this, this is pretty easy. And then, bam, the enemy comes and attacks him when he was overconfident, when he didn't have his footing. Some make it all the way through their lives and they don't finish well. They get attacked and beat up at the very end. But whatever it is, just know that the Lord can use you coming through these sifting times. You see, the Lord was about to make Peter the leader of a church that the gates of hell themselves could not stand against. That's the reason why this church is here today, because the church did not fail, because Jesus is praying for the church. Jesus has a purpose for the church, even in times of sifting and hardship. You see, Peter's leadership uh, with Paul wasn't due to his strength, but his coming through the fire with his character intact and allowing the Spirit of God to use him. And so as Peter's talking, and he's talking about, you know, I'll go to prison, I'll, I'll die for you, I'll do all these things, what's interesting is the Trinity is at work on his behalf. The Father sent the Son to Peter. The Son called him. The Son is advocating for him, praying for him, so that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, can come on Peter and use him. And it's the same for us. And often, we find ourselves in places where we're daydreaming and we don't understand the stakes and reality of men's souls, women's souls that are on the line. And like Pastor Ed says, it's our job as leaders to define reality for people at times. And Jesus doesn't pull punches. He doesn't tell Peter what he wants to hear. He just tells Peter what's going to happen. So if you're keeping notes, this is the final point. And I want you to understand that God's desire for you is not that you would be sifted to nothingness. God's desire is that we are sifted for boldness. That Peter would step up with a testimony and he would move forward in power. And you see, Jesus didn't just see Peter as he was now. Jesus saw Peter's future. Jesus saw the future of a spirit-filled man that would stand up on Pentecost and lead 3,000 other people into the kingdom of God. And one of the special marks of the early church of the Holy Ghost was a spirit of boldness, A.B. Simpson wrote. 
You see, we don't want to waste the sifting. We want to embrace the refinement of God in our life. My wife is a teacher in one of the schools that she had taught at before she came on staff here, uh, was in Colorado Springs. And it had a phrase as they were training new teachers and they were getting ready to grow kids. And they would say, go slow to go fast. Go slow to go fast. Sometimes you get caught up in the grind You want to jump ahead. These guys are ready to rule. They were ready to do things for Jesus, but they didn't have the character that they needed yet. And so they're trying to go really, really fast, and Jesus slows them down so that they can go fast at Pentecost, so that they can go fast as the church begins to spread around the world. And maybe this morning you're in a place where you just want to skip to the end, and Jesus is slowing you down and telling you, listen, You need to go slow. You need to build a weight-bearing foundation. And it's usually at this point in the process where a lot of people will either shut down or they refuse to move forward with God. They'll become suspicious of God in their faith journey and in their hearts. And it becomes a situation where it's like, well, fine, if I can't have it this way, I don't want to do it. The parable of the talents, Matthew chapter 25, uh, describes this guy who uh, sees the talent that God's given him and he decides he's going to hide it because then he can protect himself. His comfort is his highest priority. Everybody else is investing all the way, all the way around doing different stuff and he hides it. And the master comes to him and he says, all right, what is the return that you have on what I've given you? And, and he says, oh, and, and, uh, I still have it. The master's not super pleased. And he says, I had it because, see, I knew you were a harsh person and you were difficult. And so uh, I didn't want to take a chance on you hurting me, punishing me. And it grieves the father's heart because that's not who God is at all. But if the enemy can't outright destroy us, he'll try to make our heart go cold towards the father. We see Jesus goes on here in verse 35, it says, And he said to them, When I sent you without money, bag, knapsack, and sandals, in Luke 10, did you lack anything? So they said, Nothing. And then he said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it. Likewise, a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you, that which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, "Ah, it's enough. So (laughs) Jesus is telling him, you guys, you don't understand. The world invited you in. You were popular culturally. We were having a moment. It was trendy because people were getting healed. Different things were happening. You need to understand that I'm about to be betrayed. And if they're going to kill me, they're not going to treat you any better. Persecution is coming. The future is not going to look like it looks right now. And so when I sent you out before, you had that. But Jesus also tells them, I'm going to send you out as sheep, as lambs in the midst of wolves. You see, Jesus tells them persecution's coming. Things are going to be difficult. But guess what Jesus still is saying? I'm still sending you out. You're still going to go, but you need to be wise about how you go and what you do. And he's speaking to them spiritually, and they pull out their swords and put it on the table. 
Like Jesus here, we pulled our, our weapons and we have two. It's like, ah, guys, 11 fishermen from the country with two swords are not going to be able <laughs> to stop what's coming. You don't understand what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you need to be united in your focus. You're still being sent. You need to be wise in what I have for you. Because instead of fighting amongst yourselves, there's a dying world where the souls of people are at stake. And it's rough out there, but it's where my heart is. And I'm sending you in that direction. And so Jesus says it's enough, basically like, what are you guys talking about? And we need to understand that the strength of our faith will decide if we're willing to trust God in the dark, in the season where you can't see what's coming for you. Peter didn't understand the stakes and the battle that were playing out in the unseen, but it was coming for him, nevertheless. But you know who also was there? It was Jesus. And you have to be willing to trust God in the dark because your eyesight is really, really bad but the future is clear to him. The Apostle Paul reiterates in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Your sifting and your hardship is not for the tailspin or downward spiral of your life. It is part of the upward call of God. Do not sell God so short as to take what you're feeling in this moment as a lack of care or power on his part. As the worship team comes back up, I want to encourage you uh, by telling you a story. Uh, there was a man named Jim Elliott who was a missionary to Ecuador in the 1950s. And his unique call was to go with the native tribes and the indigenous tribes, and he was going to take the gospel to them. But as he's preparing to go, he spends a lot of time with the Lord, just being intimate, journaling, writing different things down. And what he doesn't know is that his call will ultimately lead him to his death. It will lead him to his martyrdom. Not because he didn't have a gun. He did. He just wasn't willing to use it to send somebody else to hell so that he would be safe. And so he wrote a phrase in his journal as he was considering the call that the Lord laid out in front of him, no matter how difficult it would be. And he wrote a question. And I would encourage you to ask yourself this question today. There's three words. Am I ignitable? Am I ignitable? Can the Lord use me where I am today? Can the Lord use you where you are today? The way you're living your life. The way you're making your choices. You might be in the middle of something and say, you know what, Pastor, I'm super dry. I'm spiritually dry. I don't feel anything. But I would encourage you that when you're trying to light a fire, dry things burn the best. Amen? And so the Lord will use whatever you bring to him and allow you to be moved by him. But I also understand that it's a choice. We have to be willing to offer ourselves as a willing vessel, as a sacrifice, in order to move forward. You know, it reminds us of grapes. 
and that only crushed grapes can bring sweet wine. And maybe you're in a season right now of crushing. And in the crushing and the new wine that he's trying to make in you, you have to decide, are you going to resist it? Or are you going to allow Christ to bring newness and freshness out of you? And maybe you're being crushed in your family. Maybe you're being crushed in your marriage. Maybe you feel like you're being crushed in your job or just in your spirit. You're sorrowful. But whatever time you may have left among us to minister, whatever time God has given you, it's his time. And he wants to use it with you. So is there anyone in here uh, who would slip up their hand and just say, yeah, I'm being crushed and it's brutal. Thank you. Thank you. I want to ask you, would you be willing to stand up where you are? I'm not trying to embarrass you because we've all been in those seasons of crushing. If we haven't, it's coming. So be encouraged. Those who are standing in the room, I want those of you who are sitting uh, to go near to them and put your hands on them. So if you guys are comfortable, if you get up, you see somebody without someone, Bianca's here in the front. Connor, if you'll come up. But they want to make sure everybody has someone. But you see, when the ministry of God comes into a room, the church has the ability to use their gifts in partnership with the Holy Spirit to bring encouragement. And those of us that that are being crushed, uh, the Lord sees you, the Lord is with you, and the Lord knew it was coming, and he's going to take care of you and pull you out. So we're going to sing a song here, but I want to encourage you, ask them their name and pray with them while the worship is going on, and just let the Lord minister through the priesthood of believers. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.